Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is Happiness Solved with America's Happiness Coach, Sandy Scarlatta. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Happiness Solved. Happy Friday. Yes, we made it through another week. So I am going to be speaking with just a beautiful, bright young woman today. Her name is Severine DeRosier, and I did have to practice that a few times before I said it <laughs> because she's Haitian French and I I would have butchered it completely. So uh, I actually had to write it down phonetically so that I would say it correctly. So Severine is a finance employee. She goes to the university in London and she's the author of a, the nonfiction book, The Path to Resilience. It's been recently published and get it out on amazon.com. So Severine loves traveling around the world and aspires to be the real-life Dora, the explorer, once the world opens up again, which is very, very cute. Don't we all? Don't we all? Well, I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, Severine, and welcome. I'm so happy to have you today on our show. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> so where are you currently living? I am in London. You're in, in the UK. You're in London now. Are you attending school there? Uh, yes. Uni so, or university, it's called. University. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> the uni, or the, the youngsters call it per se. Um, yeah. So going to school part-time and then working as well full-time. Wow. That's that's tough. I, I did that for a number of years. So I've been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> sure you had loads of fun, yeah. right? Yeah. My, my courses were all online. So it was very flexible with, you know, when I did the work and, and everything. But it was good. It was a good experience overall. Uh, I see. To In order for me not to procrastinate, they are online, but you have deadlines. So every two weeks, there's something that is due, to, I guess, to keep you on track, per se. I think if I did it fully, like with too much freedom, it would take me eight years to finish. Oh, same here. I mean, we had, dead, we had weekly deadlines and there was like certain, you had to post so many messages in the, in the chat every week and... So, but I liked that structure because I had tried an online class before, never yeah. finished it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a simple certification, yeah. I think it's still pending. <laughs> like you get really into it that first week and then afterwards you're like, yeah, no, it's just the motivation kind of goes away. Yes, exactly. So congratulations on your new book. Oh, thank the you. The Path to Resilience. Now this is your memoir. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, I know. I'm 34 and I've got a memoir going. Most people are in their 60s, I guess. Or hey, you know, older, it's okay. If you have a good story to tell, then why wait? Yeah, yeah. I feel like the first 30 years of my life plus have been like this kind of roller coaster. 
And just, I don't know, the few times that I've shared some parts of it, people were like, hey, you know, you should really write a book about it. <laughs> and so, yeah, put pen to paper. Well, say. anytime somebody says you should write a book, do it. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My mom was uh, the first, the first when I was 15. And at first I was like, what's she talking about? Like our life is slightly different, but I don't, I didn't see it. And then all this other stuff happened. And so, yeah, I just recently thought, okay, I might as well put pen to paper. It's been too many years that I've procrastinated on this. Now. So talk me through your journey because I just in reading, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of time to read. I'm kind of doing two full-time jobs right now. <laughs> um, but I did, club, yeah. I did read about, you know, the, the, you know, what your book is about. And so you came from Paris to the United States. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, in the hopes of the American dream. So it's like, I guess something that's kind of passed down from one member of the family to the other. And a sense that like my parents are from Haiti you know, the island in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. a third world country. And right before they had met, my mom was on her way to France. And this is because like my grandfather would save some money for everyone. And after like 15 years old would tell them, you know, it's going to be difficult to make a life here. So try and pick a country and then we'll try and give you like a one plane ticket to go there. And my mom happened to choose France. So and like a large portion of her 12 brothers and sisters chose like some of them had chosen America and then some of Canada. So I think like at some point in time, because of the way things were in France, it's, it's I think the system is still very complex and they all had that mentality of it's all about like where you live to get opportunities, what you look like, what your name is like and so on. So she was thought like one thing she always wanted to have bilingual children. And then also wanted to give us like an upper hand per se. And was like, I think it's not enough to learn the language, but wanted us to see a different culture as well. So that's where that notion of the American dream came on. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so she went to France when she was a teenage girl. Yeah, around the teenage years. And then were you born in France? Okay. Yes. Born, born so in, at yeah, what age um, did you come to, to America? I was 10 years Ten. old. Okay. Now, did you speak any English when you came? I wasn't even sure. You know, like everybody knows at least one sentence in the language. I was, <laughs> didn't even help that much. I wasn't sure how to say like, I love you. I think I just knew how to say hello. Oh, wow. Because you really don't have much of an accent. No, no. Do you know what? My ESOL teacher, if you don't know that ESOL is English, Spanish, and other language mm -hmm. teacher, they uh, had told me, so her theory was that if you learn a language before the age of 15, you can pick up on any accent because your vocal cords aren't formed yet. And I believe that it's true because my older sister was 15 when she came and she had a heavy French accent. But my younger sister and I, we sound like we were born and raised in America. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have a slight accent, but not like I if I didn't, if you didn't tell me you lived, you were born in, you know, until the age of 10, lived in France, I don't think I would have been able to pick up on that. No, no, no. And I, I think now it's changing because apparently it's starting to change to an English-like accent. I'm not Probably, because sure. you do. You start to pick up on the way you're hearing things around you. Yeah, yeah. Pretty different. Okay, so you spent m most of your teen years in the United States. 
So then what took place after that? Oh, um, what happened in the States, honestly, could have been a book on itself. And then coming back to France was done in a way that was very sudden, almost overnight, and had to go by things that I tried to remember. When I say like I was 10 years old, so we went on Christmas Day. My birthday is on the 19th of December, so I had literally just turned 10. And had to try to remember what I saw my parents when they were navigating through the administrative system in France as like a 10-year-old would. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, just a lot of struggles just to get anything paperwork-wise. It's still a nightmare out there. They're known for just almost being super unfriendly to anybody that didn't grow up with them. This is the French. Yeah, yeah complicated system. Well, I certainly don't have that experience, but I did go to France once and recall, I don't even know why, we just kind of were winging this trip other than having a place to to stay for seven days. (laughs) But we didn't come with any money, didn't realize it was Bastille Day. We had to drive from Paris to the Bordeaux region because my husband's kind of a wine connoisseur. With with French wine, Ooh, not with okay. all wines, but very, very much with French wines. So we were like, well, let's, you know, we decided to go to Bordeaux. Had no idea there was tolls along the way that weren't yeah. just a cut. They were, and they didn't accept U.S. dollars. This was before the chip. I mean, it was it was just oh a comedy gosh. of errors. And just long story short, we couldn't find. We needed to get to a gas station to get gas in the car, and it was Bastille Day, but we needed one that wasn't a hundred percent automated. So that we could hand them a credit card and pay for gas because the banks, we couldn't get money till the next day. Couldn't find anybody that would help us. We finally found one person. He helped us. And I was like, thank you. I'm like, because the French people really don't like Americans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think unless unless you're eating, dining in the restaurant, then, you know. Yeah, they want to be nice to you. And even then, yeah, I was going to say, even then, try and order um, meat well done and that will you know, take a very different turn. <laughs> They'll be insulted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very insulted. I had a friend who who tried it and apparently the chef came out of the kitchen and was telling her like, he, it's either medium rare at best or to get out. Wow. Yeah, they don't care. You do yeah. it my way or the highway. Exactly. Okay, so so what happened? Because you said you you had to leave the U.S. almost overnight. So what happened? Were you guys not able to stay here or what was the, what was the reasoning? Uh, yeah. So again, without giving away too much, no, not able to stay here. And it's something like, um, long in my teenage years, you know, as a child, you don't, it's not something that you think of, but as I grew up, I just started noticing different things like not being able to get a driver's license or having to be super careful when you're applying for schools or whatnot, wondering like what my social security number was just these little i guess i had like little clues but never had thought about the consequences because i wasn't i don't know i never thought to ask about how we came to the u.s exactly like i said as a child this is not a priority at all but um so yeah it just seemed like the carpet was pulled from right under you almost and it made me realize that how much like you take for granted. And one thing that I had, it took me a time, some time to get back is stability, I would say. 
more than anything, being able to come back to a place where you've got like your mom, your dad, your sister and so on, because uh, after that, we were kind of scattered into the wilderness. Oh, my goodness. So were you separated yeah. from your parents? Uh, yeah, yeah. For how long? I never got to after I left my dad. That was it, pretty much. And then with my mom, it took about a year for us to see each other again. And oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, where were you when this was happening? Were you in the States or were you back in France when you were separated? Back in France. Okay. Back now, did France. that have to do with them and coming back into uh, the yeah. country? But weren't yes, you a exactly. French citizen? Yeah. Even, uh, again, you'd have to read the book. It's complex. <laughs> you would think, but even that was like a battle for me to prove my own citizenship. So, and it, it just felt like wherever I went, I was an immigrant. And now I just feel like I don't, you know, when people call, like they say they are from someplace and they go back home too. I'm not sure where home is Exactly. Kind of like everywhere, whichever country at this point. Wow. So so where do you identify with in terms of your home? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm starting to identify with London uh, to some extent. And I think the comfort that I find in it is the melting pot effect, which you can very much find. I mean, I think I would say New York would be the closest place where you've got loads of people from different places or whatnot. But um, with London, I think for the first like two years that I lived there, I was like, does, does anybody actually, like, was anyone actually born and raised in London or is everybody <laughs> from somewhere else? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, because really home is where you make it. Home is, for me, home is a feeling. It's that feeling mm -hmm. that you have that, you know, oh, I'm so glad I'm home, wherever that is. Yeah. As they say, where the heart, where the heart is, is, right? Is. Exactly. That's exactly right. So... So I know you, and I know you're not, you're not, you don't want to give away the, your entire story. Obviously, you've been through a lot in a very, as, yeah. as, you know, as a young woman. Now, you mentioned that, that there was, there was some tragedy that you had to deal with. Talk about that. Uh, yeah. So the first one is just, I guess, it depends on the levels of tragedy. So I would say to anyone as a as a kid, it seems some, like something very tremendous. I I really did think that I would be that the girl that lived in the town, the same small town her whole life, and would marry somebody from down the street. I don't know. Then you start a family there, and so on and so forth and stuff. So I guess like the first now that seems minor tragedy was like the fact that we were moving, and it was not only like across the street but across the world. So I was like, oh gosh, you know, I guess that image is is shattered. But then also had to deal like with loss, and I uh, is like one of the chapters I didn't realize it before, and sometimes it even hits people later on in life that like you hear about deaths and especially for me where my parents have had like my dad I think had 10 brothers and sisters and my mom 12 so we have cousins and aunts and uncles and so on and there we've nobody I don't think I've met the whole family so sometimes I, I hate to say it as one as it sounds like when you hear about uncles that you met when you were two years old passing away it's not going to hit you of course the same way that it would like your mother losing her brother and whatnot but um at a young age I had to learn uh, it's literally the chapter in one of the books that death can happen to someone you know. 
yeah, and I titled it this way because it's, I don't know. I I did, I always felt like it was something that's it's far away from me. You know, it's it's a, like an, an aunt that I've never met or an uncle where I've only seen a picture or you know. And then when it's somebody that's close to you, you're like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> you know, this is real. This is yeah. It's it's very very so, real. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just say that one of the very hard pills to swallow start off with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know my older brother died when I was 12 years old. Oh, right before gosh. right before my 13th birthday and that that really changed the course of my entire family's life on many different levels. Um, um, my mom yeah. especially. And it wasn't until the day my son was born and I had only he was only in this world for 10 minutes and I'm holding him and all of a sudden I had just a tiny, tiny glimpse of what my mother must have gone through losing a child. And thank God, Mm -hmm. and I hope no parent should ever have to bury their child. So, but it was just a smidgen because when you have a baby, it's the immense love, but it's the immense fear Mm -hmm. at the same time. And and it was like, wow, I kind of understood just a little bit of what she must have gone through. Because that's that just seems like that has to be the hardest loss of all. I can't imagine anything mm-hmm. harder. And I like I, would oh, agree. I just pray to God that I never have to do <laughs> to do that. You know, it's just it's every mother's and every father's worst nightmare come true. I yeah, yeah I agree. I, so I don't have any children, but yeah, I've seen it. Like it changes the parents forever. I've got some friends as well that've had uh, such tragedies and. Yeah, like you said, losing a sibling is not easy either. Uh, but like for the parents' point of view, I can only imagine. Exactly, exactly. So we had talked before I started the interview, you talked about there's a, a portion in your book that maybe you could read. Uh, yeah, so when I was thinking of, like uh, in the process of writing it and stuff, it, it's weird writing a memoir. At first I was thinking, oh, this will be easy. I know me and you know, but um, no, actually, you have to still interview some people. And then even it's almost like you're having to do research on yourself to some extent. That makes sense. So in the midst of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold a thought, right? But in the midst of doing that, like had a conversation, I remember way back when with my sister about like my dad and his long-term illness, cancer. And she, she was telling me about it and I, I definitely wanted to include it in the book. And rather than doing like a, some sort of diary about it, I, I know it's it's not great. And I just feel like at some point in time, the reader will be like, okay, fine, like move along. So I just decided to try and... <laughs> not necessarily, you know? but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be like day one, this, this and that happened. Day two, then it gets um, less exciting. So I was like, okay, well, t- the best way that I could try to explain this is through this dream that she told me that she had, but then you include you know, how she feels per se. Okay, so I hope I don't stutter, right? Here it goes. Right, so the alarm rings. A ring so loud, so sharp, it could make your ears bleed. Dad turns over in his bed and reaches over to the alarm clock, giving it a weak tap, just barely turning it off. He slowly sits up on the side of the bed, preparing to stand up, but drops back in a sitting position, his arms now too weak to to hold him. He takes a deep breath and tries again, using all of his strength strength this time and successfully gets up slowly putting one foot in front of the other and concentrating on staying up something caught in his throat and quickly puts him in the coughing fits 
He coughs so hard it knocks him off his balance and onto the floor. Down on his knees, Dad puts one hand into his mouth as he coughs, only to look back and see blood on it. He wipes his hand on his pajamas and gets back up, heading to the bathroom. Are you okay? Bridget asked. I came over because I heard you coughing. I'm fine, he responded, and quickly glancing at her before looking up at the bathroom again. It was important not to show the pain walking was putting him in. He did not want to upset her. Are you going to work today? She asked. Yes. Only a few more steps, he thought. I'm almost there. He stopped to lean on the wall, catching his breath from the walk, and coughed again. Although putting, putting his hand over his mouth, blood splattered on the wall and on the carpet and tiles. Dad briefly looked at Bridget, hoping she didn't see, but it was too late. Bridget turns over to him and puts, his hand on her, puts her hand on his shoulder, looking at him in the eye. Dad, you're sick. You can't go to work like this, she pleaded. We need the money. We have to eat and pay for the house, he argued. He turned his body away from her, taking his first step away, away and onto the tile. Underestimating how cold the tile was and how fragile the cancel made him, he screamed in agony at first contact. The tile under his foot felt like he just stepped onto a knife. Dad, Bridget screamed, trying to pull him away from the tile. I'm fine, Bridget. You can let go of me. He pulled his arm away. Bridget let him go and watched. He came over to the sink and splashed water on his face. She heard him coughing while walking away and poked her head back in to check in to see if he was okay. There, she found him on the floor, his white pajamas, the bathroom, the cupboard, all around him, smothered in blood. With one hand on the counter, he tried to pull himself up, but he kept slipping onto the blood. Saddened and fearful, Bridget felt the tears hitting her upper lip. She went over to him, stepping onto the floor. Dad, please stay home today. We'll figure something out for the bills. Just stay home and get some rest, she pleaded. He didn't answer, nor show any sign that he's even heard her. He just kept trying to get himself off the floor and slipping every time. Realizing there was nothing she could do, she retreated to the corner of the bathroom, where she sat against the wall, sobbing at the sight. Bridget opened her eyes, and luckily it was all a dream. She sat up and looked around the room, then hugged her pillow, crying into it. She cried quietly so she wouldn't wake Dad. She knew that although it was a dream, it was close to reality. As this was their lives now, this was what the cancer had done. Wow. Now, I love, I love the way you did that in a dream simply because, <laughs> like you said, you didn't have to go into what happened every single day, but that still was such a powerful image of what that must have been like to, to witness him yeah. and to go through it. Exactly. Um, so, I know, it's not, obviously it's not a happy dream, but this was reality for her. Now, how old were you when he was um, diagnosed with cancer? 21. Okay. And then when did he pass on? I was 24. Okay. So, yeah. So it was, it was a, a, a good three-year struggle. Oh, exactly. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that loss. Now, what type of cancer Thank did he you. have? Uh, I think it was stomach cancer. Mm. Yeah. I think, like, at first it started to get better. So we had some hopes, and then it came back very aggressively. Mm. Now, now, how long were you separated from your father? Because you said at one point, now, did you ever see your father again? Because at one point you, you were separated from him. When yeah, were you re so, reunited with your father? Uh, I see. We separated at 20, when I was 21, and then I saw him again when I was 24. Okay, so you got to at least spend some time with him before he passed on? Well, that's good. Yeah, right. Before. Good. 
Yeah. Good, 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 yeah. good, good. Yeah. So what type of emotions does that bring up for you when you were reading this right now? Oh, um, well, full disclosure, I had to, honestly, even to write some of the chapters, I had to go through some therapy, I would say. But the way that I feel my emotions usually with, like, you know, you have the lump in your throat. I would say, it, it, I mean, I mean, it's, you know, been over a, a little bit, over 10 years, I want to say. But when you reread it, you have to get back into the emotions. So I guess, like, sadness. And even a little bit of fear, even though it's all over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, well, I I think your book sounds amazing, and I really hope that it will offer some healing for other people that have had to go through that themselves. Yeah. Um. I don't know if you had seen like the, the my little book trailer. It's it touches on different subjects. I couldn't help but realize, and I've had just different people come up to me for various reasons. So a few, yeah, like it's unreal the amount of pe- parents that uh, people whose parents died of cancer. It's too many now. I think um, there's not, you know, there's less and less people that don't know somebody within their circle that has been touched by cancer. It's crazy common then i've had some like people even at work that came up to me about like the immigration issues and so on and just telling me that they've got we've just got some things in common so while it isn't a self-help book at least not at first i'm happy that like people afterwards were like oh thank you for writing it and it sheds some light on a b and c kind of subject well of course because they're they're learning you know through your through your story that path to, re- to resilience. So let's go back to that, the title. What does that mean to you? Um, it is very literal, I would say. So at first, there was I changed the title last minute. It was meant to be something like, what do they want it to be? How Precious Life Is? Something like that. But then it's one of those things, I guess I chose the title too early because once I finished it, and even anybody that I like had, you know, test run and my beta readers, especially, they all like the same word kept coming back, resilience, resilience. So I was like, okay, do you know what? Yeah. At some point in time, you go from somebody that is sheltered to the person that I am today. So I would say, yeah, it's the path that and then in the book, I'm showing the path from the sheltered person to the stronger woman. So Love that's it. where the title came from. Love it. And anytime <laughs> yeah. we can empower other women. That's just so important. So, so important. Definitely. Definitely. Um, at the risk of quoting my prologue, right? I honestly do think that people underestimate their strength. And when it is the only option that you have, then you're like, oh, wow, I can actually do this. Now that, it, you know, you underestimate, yeah, your level of resilience. And many people do. And it's until you are faced with those types of challenges in your life, that is when you realize just how strong you are. You know, I mean, yeah. that old, you know, saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is 100% true, okay. you know? Very much yeah. so. Very much so. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners before we close up? Yeah, so I was going to say, like, to go back on what we just said, this it isn't a self-help book, but the message that I would like is, for me, Prior to writing this, with all these things that had happened before, I felt it made me feel 
ashamed of what happened and then therefore you feel isolated and so i'm hoping that it will help people feel like these are just things that have happened to you they're not necessarily who you are and you don't have to feel isolated like i had so i feel like it's you know liberating i would say to have written it and it's scary to put out into the world but for the cause of course it's always scary to put put something out there but i'm so grateful that you did because you definitely will touch so many people that have you know whether they've you know have felt that isolation or felt that shame even that right there that you just shared is huge because nobody nobody needs to be in that place ever exactly well severine thank you so much for joining me today and for all the listeners, you can purchase her book, The Path to Resilience, on Amazon.com. Thanks. Thank you, Severine. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. So talk about resilience. Goodness, she really sounds like she's had such an interesting life at such a young age, too. And good for her for, for putting it out there, you know, so that other people can be helped by her story. And I love that she only gave us just enough information about the book. So now I'm going to certainly go out and, and buy the book and read it because I, I want to know her story. So you can find her book, The Path to Resilience, on Amazon.com. Thank you all for joining me today. If you want to learn more about me, my website is sandyscarlotta.com. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Coach Sandy Scarlotta. And if you're watching or listening to this on my YouTube channel, please subscribe. That would be really great. I'd certainly appreciate it. And lastly, I hope that you and your family stay healthy and safe. We are going to get through this for sure. And uh, I just hope that your life is filled with love, peace, happiness, and of course, resilience. Take care, everyone. credit card bill.